Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Robert Kopp, director of the Rutgers Institute of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences, and a professor at Rutgers University. He's also a co-director at the Climate Impact Lab. I'll talk with Bob about sea level rise, a hugely important and rapidly evolving research area. With new studies coming out seemingly every week, Bob will give us the latest update on how a changing climate will affect sea levels and where the major uncertainties still lie. I'll also ask him how he responds when people ask a common question posed of climate scientists. Are we doomed? Stay with us. Bob Kopp from Rutgers University, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. My pleasure. So, Bob, we're going to talk today mostly about sea level rise uh, and in particularly about some of the latest research on that topic. But before we do that, we always like to learn from our guests how they got into the world of uh, environmental uh, research. So how did it happen for you? How did you end up working on climate change and, and learning about sea level in particular? Well, I actually started out wanting to study climate change on Mars. Um, my undergraduate work was on Martian meteorites. Um, particularly one meteorite that had um, putative evidence of signs of life in it. Um, And from there, I went on to study sort of the long-term evolution of life and climate on our own planet. Um, So my my PhD work at Caltech focused in part on the fossils of bacteria that make magnets and how we can use those to reconstruct past environments, and in part on um, past global glaciations, something known as snow alert. So after finishing up at, at Caltech, I wanted to sort of take what I had learned about how to look at the Earth system as an integrated cis hole that evolves over time um, and apply it to some sort of pressing societal challenges. So that's sort of how I started working on climate change and sea level rise. I did a postdoc at Princeton with Michael Oppenheimer, um, where I started working uh, primarily on past sea level changes and what we can learn from them about how sensitive sea level and ice sheets are to future warming. Um, And from there, I then went uh, to the Department of Energy where I spent two years in the Climate Policy Office as a AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellow. So I worked partially on international energy efficiency uh, cooperation and partially on the first uh, US government estimates of the social cost of carbon. Um, which is sort of how I sort of got in the orbit of resources for the future in the first place. And then I came to Rutgers after finishing up there and, and have sort of continued to work both on sea level change and on economic impacts of climate change in my time here. Yeah, that's great. So lots of lots of experience and lots of sort of interrelated uh, pieces of this puzzle. Uh, which is fantastic. So, so we're going to focus in mostly on one of those pieces today, which which is uh, sea level. And the reason uh, we're talking to you this week is because there have been a few papers coming out in the last several weeks and months, and I guess there's always new papers coming out, but it struck me that that a couple papers were, were particularly interesting. One of them was by Frank Patton et al. in Nature Climate Change. The title of the paper, so people can look it up, is The Greenland and Antarctic Ice Sheets Under 1.5 Degrees Celsius Global Warming. And so we thought this would just be a useful time to check in about the state of the science on sea level rise and try to understand kind of where we are in this new world of research. So before we dive into the 
the latest findings. Can you give us a brief overview on the key drivers of sea level rise in the context of a changing climate and also what some of the major areas of uncertainty are? Sure. So um, first of all, we have to distinguish between what's happening sort of at the global average and what's happening in particular places uh, because sea level isn't uniform. So at sort of the global average, there are two main things that are going on. One, the ocean is the main sink for heat on the planet. So it's the thing that slows down the warming of the planet. It absorbs heat. And as it does so, the ocean warms and it expands. And so thermal expansion, as we call it, is one of the key drivers of um, what we call global mean sea level rise. Right. Um, and the other is the change in the amount of water that's actually in the ocean. Right. And so the largest driving factors of changes in the amount of water in the ocean is melting of ice on land. And that's both ice in mountain glaciers and also ice in or adjacent to um, the planet's large ice sheet, the Greenland ice sheet in the north, uh, which if it were all to melt, uh, would raise global average sea level by about seven meters. And uh, the East Antarctic and West Antarctic ice sheets in the south, which if they were to melt, would raise global average sea levels by about 57 meters in total. So. Those are, the, those are the main drivers. Over the last um, several decades, the increase in amount of water being added to the ocean and the increase in the volume of, of water that started out in the ocean, so thermal expansion and land ice factors have been roughly balanced, but the land ice portion of that is becoming an ever-growing share of that. So, so glacier, mountain glaciers are important, but what we're really concerned about are the contributions from the ice sheets just because there's so much potential sea level rise locked up in the ice there. Right. And the contribution of those ice sheets in the north and, and in the south that we're going to talk about, am I right in thinking that those are kind of the areas where the biggest uncertainty ranges are as well? Yeah. And, and really, well, on the, on the longer time scale anyways, yes, really, um, it's the ice sheets, but particularly the Antarctic ice sheets for reasons we can get into. But Remember that I said there's a difference between global average sea level and local sea level. Um, and that's important because when we're talking about the global average, that's not necessarily what, you know, if you were to go to your local tide gauge and the Potomac River, you wouldn't be seeing a, sea a signal that matches global sea level precisely. You'd be seeing a signal that differs from global sea level, um, both because of factors that may have to do with the solid earth. So in DC, uh, you're adjacent to the edge of an ice sheet that once covered North America and the land is sinking because that ice sheet, when it was there, pushed the land up. And you're also exposed to shifts in large scale ocean circulation. So when the Gulf Stream shifts, that causes a sea level change. Sea level's a different height on different sides of the Gulf Stream. And so that's actually an important factor driving both variability um, along the coast of North America, the east coast of North America, um, and also long-term changes. And winds are another important driver. So you have, we have to keep in mind that in the short term, it's actually not the ice sheets that are the dominant source of uncertainty. It's, it's largely the sort of atmosphere and ocean dynamics. But in the long term, um, it is uh, the ice sheets that are the dominant driver of uncertainty. Right. That makes sense. And so... So we're going to talk about you know different estimates of sea level rise over different time periods. But before that, can you put that in a little bit of context by giving us 
some of the recent estimates on global mean sea level rise by the end of the 21st century or other time frames that we're interested in? Kind of, you know, what, what are the consensus ranges that are out there today? So, so sea level has been rising in the global average since the late 19th century. Um, and current estimates are that it's risen by about seven to eight inches since 1900, with a good chunk of that, um, roughly three inches, happening in the last two and a half decades. So, so that's the context. Um, there's also a growing body of evidence that sort of directly ties most of that rise, um, particularly the rise since 1970, to human-caused uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Looking forward, if we look to 2050, we have relatively well-defined um, distributions of future projections. Um, and those distributions are relatively insensitive um, to how much greenhouse gas we emit. The, the ice sheets in the oceans are sort of slow and sluggish systems, so it's just not long enough for differences uh, between a future of high emissions and low emissions to, to kick in. And so in the global average 2050, between, uh, relative to, to where we were in the year 2000, um, our numbers are somewhere between about 0.4 feet and 1.3 feet of sea level rise. So you can think of that as in the ballpark of about a foot. Um, as we go beyond 2050, the uncertainty in the projections and the sensitivity of the projections to greenhouse gas emissions grows quite a bit. So if we look to 2100, and if we're looking in a low emission scenario, one that's sort of consistent with the Paris goal of bringing net greenhouse gas emissions to zero in the second half of the century, our projections are roughly in the range of one to three feet of global average sea level rise. But if we're in a high emissions trajectory, then you know, it, it becomes increasingly uncertain how much sea level rise there's going to be. If you look at projections that are consistent with sort of where the IPCC thought we were um, in 2013, um, you end up with numbers sort of roughly in the range of about two to four feet. There was one paper that made a big splash a couple of years ago about the potential instability of the Antarctic driven by something called marine ice cliff instability. Um, and if you took that paper at face value under a high emission scenario of continued fossil fuel growth, you might be looking at a range of three to eight feet. That's probably a little overly aggressive compared to where most people in the community would land. But I think most people in the community would also land somewhat higher than the two to four foot range. We actually did a expert elicitation study um, with some colleagues at Resources for the Future a few months ago. And sort of the, the key results of that are yet to be published, but, the, but they are sort of in the middle between those two distributions. Right. That's really helpful. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, at least one of these new papers, and, and you can add more context around them uh, than me, who, who's only read a few of these things. So the, the paper that I read recently, the Patton et al. paper, makes estimates about how uh, the ice sheets in Greenland and the West Antarctic ice sheets uh, might melt, and in particular, where they might have so-called tipping points, which are the points at which uh, they would completely collapse over some period of time. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, that idea of tipping points for those two major ice sheets, uh, starting with the, the Greenland ice sheet, which I, I think uh, we might spend a little less time on than the Antarctic 
context, but can you tell us what we sort of know about tipping points for the Greenland Ice Sheet, including how much sea level rise uh, might be likely to occur uh, if we were to reach one of those points, and, and also the time frames over which uh, that, that rise could happen? Yeah, so I'm, along with some other colleagues, are on record as not liking the term tipping points when it's applied um, to a lot of things in the climate system that many people like applying it to, because I think it's confusing, right? If you think about where most people talk about tipping points, right, you're talking about sort of Malcolm Gladwell type tipping points, where you hit some threshold and then things happen quickly. Um, that's the, there are tipping points like that in the climate system, um, where you can sort of hit a threshold and then get rapid changes. But largely when we're talking about ice sheets, we're talking about sort of thresholds that lead to irreversible commitments, but those commitments might still play out over thousands of years. Um, and that, um, you know, if you look at the patent paper, certainly what it finds for the Greenland ice sheet. So one thing, tipping points in general, both sort of the Gladwell type tipping points and the, the other things that I would just prefer to call critical thresholds have in common is that they involve feedback. So things that feed upon themselves that amplify themselves. So in Greenland, the two feedbacks they focus on um, have to do with something called uh, the elevation feedback. So basically, as you melt the ice sheet, it decreases in altitude. And at lower altitudes, it's warmer, so you get more melt. Um, and also the albedo feedback. So as you shrink the ice sheet, you replace this highly reflective ice with dark land, so you absorb more of the sun's energy and you warm up faster. And those two feedbacks help drive um, sort of a critical threshold in the Greenland ice sheet, which that paper indicates is you know, somewhere in the range of one and a half to two and a half degrees Celsius of warming, right? So you, you pass some threshold um, and you commit yourself to this feedback loop that leads you to a much smaller Greenland ice sheet. Um, and we have some evidence from about 125,000 years ago, the last time global average temperatures were around where they are today, that Greenland may have been smaller than today by enough to raise um, sea levels somewhere between basically six and, and 30 feet. It's, a, it's actually a little, a little contentious um, how small Greenland was during this time period, the last interglacial, but the whole sea level itself was substantially higher and, and Greenland seems to be a, somewhat smaller. So, so that's sort of the Greenland story. Uh huh. And when we think about timeframes for those uh, changes in in the system, what what kind of timeframes are we are we looking at for Greenland? You're you're probably looking at several thousand years for a full transition to take place. Um, you know, right now Greenland is contributing um, slightly less than a millimeter per year uh, to global average sea level rise, and you know most of the projections for, for 2100 would, would put, um, you know, that its contribution in the sort of 10 centimeter-ish range. Yeah, okay, so thousands of years, it definitely doesn't sound like a tipping point. So I'm glad you cleared that up. When I think of a tipping point, I think of my five-month-old son who's, you know, falling over from a sitting position. And when he starts to go, he goes fast. Um, so that's definitely not what's happening yeah. in, uh, in Greenland. That is also what my five-month-old son does. <laughs> we should talk about this more. Um, so let's move south now from Greenland and talk a little bit about Antarctica. Can you 
tell us a little bit about what the outlook is for Antarctica in terms of you know how much it's contributing to sea level rise uh, today and, and what the projections are over the, the coming decades, and then move into some of these critical th- threshold questions and uh, what we might be seeing in the research for Antarctica in terms of longer-term sea level rise. Yes, well, Antarctica is sort of, I may be a little biased, but I think where some of the most important questions uh, determining future sea level rise um, are today. Um, And the reason why it's more Antarctica than Greenland has to do with the the nature of the ice sheet. There are many vulnerable regions of the Antarctic, mostly in West Antarctica, but also some in the much larger East Antarctic, where the ice sits below sea level. And so the dominant factor determining what happens to the ice isn't as it is in Greenland, um, sort of the balance between how much snow you get and how much melt you get. It's really quite complicated interactions that happen between the ice sheet, the floating ice shelves at the edge of the ice sheet and the the ocean. Um, So there was actually a paper that came out that had an estimate of the Antarctic contribution over the last eight years or so, and its estimate uh, was that the Antarctic contribution had grown so that it was almost as large as the Greenland contribution. And it also found that there was a significant contribution over the last several decades um, from a part of the Antarctic that many people think is, has actually been fairly stable, the, the East Antarctic. So why are we so concerned about the Antarctic? Well, we have these inter- complex interactions between the ocean and the ice sheet and the ice shelves, um, and they give rise to sort of two different um, feedback loops we're concerned about. So when you think feedback, positive feedback loops, amplifying feedback loops, you know, you always have these potential for these, these critical thresholds. And in the case of the Antarctic, we're really not sure what breaks are and, and, and what the speed limits are. But one of those um, feedback loops involves something called marine ice sheet instability. And the idea there is basically you have the ice sheet sort of sitting in a bowl that it's created under its own weight in the earth. So as warm water eats away at the ice sheet from underneath, you actually expose a larger and larger cross section of the bowl to warm water. And so you get this sort of marine ice sheet instability. And so that's been something that's been studied um, significantly for a little over a decade. And is in sort of most of the models that are used to project future Antarctic change. And then there's a second, you know, very controversial idea um, involving something called marine ice cliff instability. And the idea there is that if you lose the floating ice shelves, and ice shelves, for, for those who don't know, are just, they're sort of ice at the edge of the ice sheet, they're floating. And so when they melt, they don't affect sea level directly. But by being there, they sort of protect the ice sheet uh, from some of the exposure it might otherwise get. Right, it's sort of holding back the ice that's holding back on the land. ice that's currently on land. Yeah, and if you lose those, then you, there's a potential to get large cliffs of ice that can become unstable under their own weight. And you can see this process happening in sort of narrow, narrow fjords in Greenland, uh, but we don't think it's a very important process in the Antarctic right now. Um, but one of the big controversies is how important it might become in the future. Um, And so it's that 
process, the loss of the ice shells followed by the instability of the ice cliffs that led this paper by Rob DeCanto and Dave Pollard that came out in 2016 to project these very high-end Antarctic contributions that gave rise to that sort of three to eight foot um, number for total global sea level rise um, by the end of the century that I suggest. And as I said, you know, I think Rob and Dave, you know, have a new paper that will delay that a little um, so they don't get quite as large numbers, but you're still talking potentially about numbers that are significantly larger um, than that, what the IPCC thought five years ago. Right. And as this new research is coming out, how quickly does it get integrated into these sort of larger Earth system models? Do, do modelers who work on this um, type of stuff, are they able to integrate it relatively quickly? Or is there a lot of testing and um, sort of model intercomparison that needs to happen before we have much confidence in the models? I guess one of the things um, that is a, a frontier, but it only sometimes happens right now, is that ice sheets actually aren't in the larger system models by and large, right? There, there, there are some specific experiments where um, you try, the modelers try coupling an ice sheet into the Earth, into an Earth system model. Um, but by and large, when we're, we're looking at Earth system models, so things that model the oceans and the atmosphere and the land, the ice sheets are just sitting there. They're, they're not dynamically responding. And so when you turn to these Earth system models or global climate models, they can tell you about changes in sea level driven by the uptake of heat by the ocean and by changes in ocean and atmosphere circulation. But for other contributors to sea level, you actually have to go and, and take the output from those models and feed it into another model that say looks at how glaciers change or looks at how the ice sheets change. And one of the things that's actually emerging from some of the work on the ice sheet is that sometimes you may actually need to do a a, a full and very tedious and slow coupling between those two because, for instance, the runoff uh, from the ice sheet may have a significant effect back on the oceans and the atmosphere. Right. That's so interesting. So I imagine this is a really active area of research that people are working on. Yes, definitely. So the last question about uh, Antarctica, um, which is this, the same as a question I asked about Greenland a few minutes ago. When we're thinking about these uh, long-term projections uh, for, you know, reaching these critical thresholds for Antarctica? Are we also thinking about, you know, timeframes of thousands of years like we are for Greenland? Well, so, I mean, again, it sort of depends where your story sits, right? We're, if yeah. you were to melt all of the Antarctic, right, you would be talking about 200 feet of sea level rise. And we're saying, well, let's suppose we're on a high emissions trajectory. Do we commit to 200 feet of sea level rise? We may in a couple centuries, but you're not going to get a couple hundred feet of sea level rise for several millennia. But when you have a couple hundred feet of sea, potential sea level rise there, uh, it doesn't take that much to have an amount of sea level rise that is quite significant by human standards. So as I said, right, when, when we're look, talking about things like eight feet of sea level rise in the century, that's within the realm of physical plausibility and it's within the realm of physical plausibility, largely because you could see a contribution from Antarctica of that scale um, or of, a, of the scale of several feet. Now, right. if we see an Antarctic contribution, that's say three feet in this century, that would you would need in order to get to the sort of eight foot of global average sea level rise, that means we've committed to much more than that, right? That the system right. is still quite slowly responding 
but it can respond quickly enough that we can get a large amount on a time frame that is sort of economically relevant. And, you know, that's just a down payment on, on what would be entrained if, we, if that is what we saw. Right. That makes sense. So, so that makes me think of a question that people ask me frequently when they learn that I do, you know, at least some research on, on climate issues. And when they ask me this question, they're not just thinking about sea level rise, but but let me ask it just in the context of sea level rise. So so if I tell someone I work on climate change, one of the questions that they often ask is, um, you know, are we doomed uh, to some sort of dystopian future where sea levels are, you know, 20, 50, 100 feet higher than they are today? When people ask you that question, uh, how do you think about it and how do you respond to it? So uh, the answer is no, we're not doomed. So So let's start with that. Yeah. There, there is sea level rise that we can't avoid, and it's on, you know, on the scale of feet in the century, and we will have to take measures to adapt to that, right? So if you ask, you know, are there small island states, are there barrier islands that might not make it through the century, then I say yes. In that context, you know, there are areas where probably relocation is inevitable. Um, but more broadly, one, right, we can reduce our, our emissions. And if we bring them down to zero in this century, we significantly cut this sort of tail of possible really high end outcomes. Right. Second, uh, you know, humans are smart and we can, I think, make investments uh, to, to adapt to the changes that are in store. Um, you know, the, the state of the inf of infrastructure in the U.S. sometimes give me pause when I say that, but there certainly have been times in uh, American history where we have made investments with significant foresight. Um, and then I guess the third thing is dystopian futures are, you know, that that's a, that, that's a product of the social system. That's not, you know, the boundary, the boundary condition may be provided by the climate, but how we respond to that is, is a choice of individuals and in, in societies and economic systems. Um, and, you know, I think we can get on a course that will stabilize the climate and cut this tail of emissions and make smart investments to manage those uh, changes that we have already uh, sort of committed us to. Yeah, that's really well said. I, I totally agree with it. And um wish I could have you at my dinner parties to be more eloquently answering that question than, uh, than I usually am. Um, so, so thanks so much for uh, for sharing all of this great insight. And I know we've really just scratched the surface here on on the topic of sea level rise. But thank you so much for for sharing all of your perspectives. And and I want to close out uh, by asking you the same question that that we always ask our guests uh, at the end of a an episode, which is uh, you know what have you read or watched or heard recently related to energy or the environment that that you think is really interesting and that you'd recommend to our listeners. Yeah. So so thinking about that question. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I had a first son a few months ago, so I haven't really had that much time to do things that, that aren't um, sort of technical reading, as, as you're probably yes. aware. I know the feeling. But, but there are a couple of things that came, that came to mind. So one, there's this very nice essay um, that Kate Marvel from Columbia wrote, you know, it was a personal reflection, where it gets back to your question about are we doomed? Um, and she was arguing, right, we shouldn't be thinking about this in terms of hope. We should be thinking about this in terms of courage, right? We are creating a world that is different than the ones that we grew up in. And, you know, we're going to need courage to deal with that. 
um, not just not just hope that it will be a better a better place. Um, and so that that was that was a very very interesting reflection. There's a number of of popular books that I, I think have been fairly interesting. Um, you know, Elizabeth Colbert's Six Extinction is one that I liked and have thought about using in teaching because it sort of places modern changes in this in this long um, time scale context. Um, and then I've also sort of been in a, a little bit of a, a, a climate fiction uh, kick, in particular, sort of looking for for fiction that again sort of have that theme of courage uh, and or hope, not despair. That that sort of presents a a view of human thriving in the face of what is generally for literary regions, uh, fairly extreme climate change. Um, so Kim Stanley Robinson had a book uh, a couple of years ago, New York 2140, that, yeah. that I, I liked a lot. Also Cory Doctorow had one, uh, Walk Away. So this idea of sort of optimistic visions of the future. Right. Yeah. New York 2140. A friend lent that to me recently, and I'm actually in the middle of it right now. Uh, it's funny you mentioned climate related fiction. We uh, had Fran Moore from UC Davis on the show a few weeks ago, and she actually uh, recommended some of the same books. So um, or at least the same topic, actually, not some not any of the same books, but the same topic. So it's good to know that um, that we're out there thinking about climate at work and at home. So Bob Kopp, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's been really fascinating. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.